Radio Mano Papachango. Thank you for joining me in another edition, another episode of this little home-crafted, hand-hewn podcast coming out of... If I had a garage, I would do it in my garage. I don't even have a fucking garage, so I'm doing it in my one-room cabin in Topanga. Cassie's very kind when she sees me gearing up to do a podcast. She wanders out into the woods somewhere. So that I don't feel self-conscious. It's weird. I feel self-conscious of someone sitting in the room while I do this, even though I know that there are tens of thousands of you out there listening to it. That doesn't make me nervous because I can't see you or sense you physically. I can't hear you breathing over there or whatever. So it's very easy to ignore. But if there's somebody sitting in the room with me, it makes me kind of self-conscious. Isn't that weird? I mean, it's like being a, like one of those cam women who, like, I'm fine masturbating for thousands of people online, but I couldn't do it if there were a dude in the room with me. Weird. Anyway, this episode is with a guy named Steve Mullins. He's a musician, flamenco guitarist. He teaches music. And uh, he's an ethnomusicologist. So we get into some really interesting stuff here. I I feel so privileged to um, to be able to pick people's brains. This is like the best job ever. And I have to thank all of you for making it possible. And that, uh, you know, especially those of you who support the podcast financially, uh, those of you who can and do, I really appreciate that. It makes it possible for me to go out on these road trips like the one Casilda and I uh, were on when I recorded this in Boulder, near Boulder, a place called Hygiene, Colorado, actually. Uh, and it gives me the time so I don't have to go get a job or do other things. So I'm free to just take off and go talk to interesting people. And uh, it's such a great job. It, it's sort of the perfect gig for me. I just love hanging out with people and picking their brains. And this guy really knows a lot about music, ethnomusicology, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, ethno, having to do with culture and music, obvious. Uh, so it's about how music is created and perceived in different cultures. And, you know, music is one of those things like sexuality, like altered states of consciousness, like food. It's one of those fascinating areas that bridge the personal the cultural and the species. So you, you know, looking at food, for example, we began Sex at Dawn with a discussion of food because I thought it was really important to get, to convince the reader before doing anything else, to convince the reader that what feels natural to you, what feels to you like something that you experience so deeply, so immediately that you assume that it is essential to the species. Um, 
that that is an illusion in many cases. So with food, we're talking about the sort of arbitrariness of taste and like how in some cultures, like American culture, it's totally normal to, you know, eat a cow's muscles, but not its organs, not its brain. Um, and but with, uh, you know, you don't eat cow skin, but with pigs, you do. It's called crackling or, you know, I forget the other name for it. Um, George Bush claimed he enjoyed pig skin at some point to try to look down homey. Um, but how arbitrary it is in Australia, the Aboriginal people were eating these grubs, witchetty grubs, which the, you know, the Europeans thought was totally disgusting and must be evidence of them starving to death. Otherwise, why would you eat a grub? That's so gross. And then you talk to the, the Aboriginal people and they're like, dude, it tastes like mozzarella. It's delicious. And they're all over the place and they're high in protein and, you know, the beneficial fats. And it turns out there's absolutely no justification there's there's no real reason for assuming that one food is more natural than any other um within the full spectrum of human experience sexuality is very similar some cultures say oh my god you know homosexuals that's that's an aberration that's an insult to god and other cultures are like no that's just a normal expression of human desire there's absolutely nothing weird about it, it it's all all these things that are culturally determined, yet we experience them with a profundity that makes us think that they're human universals, those are very dangerous. And it, I think it's very important to hone the skill of thinking through that, of, of recognizing these assumptions for what they are, and then thinking through it. And that doesn't mean you have to change your behavior. And this is a point I make over and over again when I'm giving public presentations about monogamy and sex at dawn and all that. Just because we're saying this is not a human universal doesn't mean that you can't continue to behave in the way that's comfortable for you. So personally, I would find it very difficult to eat a witchetty grub, to put a a twitching little fucking fat worm in my mouth and crunch it live and feel its its guts and it's oozing onto my tongue. I don't care if it tastes like mozzarella. I would have to be starving before I would be able to do that. But I understand that that's just my hang-up. I understand that there's no real reason that makes any sense for why I react that way other than the fact that I was raised in a culture where those images and reactions were infiltrated into my mind by the culture. So yeah, you're straddling it because on one hand you are who you are, but at least on the other hand, you understand that a large part of who you are is just because of the happenstance of when and where you were born. I like American football. I, d I don't like American football. I hate American football. I hate the fact that these grown men are running each other and slamming their heads into each other and going to die early from brain damage 
and it's all this macho posturing and all this just silly war image where you know penetrating their end zone and then taking enemy territory and oh it's a long bomb and George Carlin did a great piece about the uh the semantics of football versus baseball and how baseball's all peaceful and you know, you just want to go home and, you know, you listen to it, Google it, George Carlin, baseball versus football. It's fantastic. It's hilarious and very insightful. Anyway, I, I despise it. And yet if it's on a TV and I'm sitting in a bar, my eyes will go to it and I will be drawn into the movement of the game because I grew up watching it and I kind of get it. I played, you know, I didn't play well or on any big teams or anything, but I played, you know, pick up football when I was a kid. It's in me somewhere. And so it resonates in a way that uh, cricket never will. What the hell am I talking about? Oh, ethnomusicology. So we get into these questions of, of how different cultures experience music. And it's one of those things that I would have thought we all get it. We all sort of experience music the same, but Steve is very clear and articulate in showing how, no, music is very much an expression of a culture. I remember a long time ago, I was in Venezuela with uh, Stanley Krippner. We were at a psychology conference in Caracas, and I met these some some women there who took me out to a club and they were showing me around town and and uh oh they were so hot jeez oh my god but um they took me this this club and everyone was dancing you know sort of latin salsa dancing and i just can't i i i don't i don't dance well anyway but that kind of dancing is just totally beyond me i i just that weird kind of twitchy movement i can't do it um and they were like come on let's dance i was like yeah i don't really like i don't really feel this music i don't dance this way and they're like well what, you but you do dance right and i lied and i was like yeah sure i dance and they said what do you dance to and i said well i like you know like funk like like prince and they all sort of looked at each other and they were like you dance to prince like that was the weirdest thing they'd ever heard. Whereas to me, like, you know, funky Prince tune that gets in my body and makes me want to move. But for them, it was like, who would ever dance to Prince? So I guess I knew that music was culturally um, delineated. And, and another expression of that, I, when I was going to India the first time and I was packing my backpack in which, by the way, there was all kinds of shit that I would never need or use in India, like a tent, a sleeping bag, because <laughs> I, mean, I, I was packing as if I were going to Alaska, which is the last place that I had traveled. Uh, and, you know, like generals always prepare for the last war. I was packing for the last trip. India, you don't need a fucking tent and or a sleeping bag, that's for sure, or hiking boots. But anyway, I decided to try to minimize and save some space so I left behind my um, cassettes I had a Walkman and some cassettes and I was like no I won't do that I'll just listen to Indian music and that'll help me like immerse myself in the culture and then of course I got there and listened to some Indian music and it was like static on the radio I couldn't hear it I couldn't feel it I still can't 
it again, I think it's it's like eating witchetty grub. You grow up with it or you don't, you know. Uh, and I understand that it's complex and there's some sitar music, some Ravi Shankar, something that I can get into some of the, you know, fusion kind of stuff. There's a, a band Jai Utal and the Pagan Love Orchestra, which I get into sometimes. Um, but in general, that genre of music is incomprehensible to me. And, uh, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's what we talk about in this conversation. Uh, Steve plays. He's, as I said, he's a flamenco guitarist, excellent guitarist. So there's some performance and a lot of talk about what is music. Do other animals experience music? How does it differ? How is an expression of culture? So on and so forth. So I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation as I did. Before we get into that, a couple of things. I just want to thank people who have signed up for Patreon in the last week or so. Chris Belsky, thank you, sir. Uh, Matt Owen, Matt with one T, so I'm guessing it's not the Matt Owen I know, but in any case, thank you, Matt Owen. Uh, Matt Mahaney, thank you, Matt. Dan Murphy, Julia Smith, thank you. Christian Diamond, uh, Bob Thomason, Sam Lawrence, and I think I read some of these uh, last time. Thank you. And those of you who I haven't named, obviously, thank you too. While I'm thanking Patreon supporters, I want to thank some people who have been, who aren't recent. They've, they've been contributing for quite a while, and uh, I really appreciate the steady support. Albert Sheen, James Connolly, Daniel Dust, Mela Sarkar, Dave, who didn't give his last name, William Liu, Gerard Riesnick, Riesink, Riesink, Gerard Riesink, Scott Move, Jari Marcy, M. Lucy Pavalok, uh, Jeff Dickinson, Paul Doherty, Helene Halverson, Gavin Peacock, John McInnes, Andy Warren, Mark Bishop, Anna Colber, Doug, who I insisted stop because he's a friend of mine and I saw his name there. I'm like, Doug, what are you doing? Stop that. Buy me a beer. Let me buy you a beer. J.D. Wallace, David Spadafora, Great Ghouls, uh, Tierney Germer, Jonathan, another friend who I insisted stop doing that. David Ralston, Zachary Vargas, Laura, Laura Houlihan, Laura Houlihan, Brad Hagoski, Ian O'Neill, and Craig Brown. Those are just a few of people who've been uh, supporting the podcast for quite a while on Patreon, and I don't want to just uh, pay attention to the new ones. I want you guys to know how much I appreciate it as well. All right. Without much further ado, I want to get into this conversation. I just posted a conversation I had with Duncan Trussell recently. There was no bullshit on that one, no ads, no please give me your money, no buy t-shirts, no nothing. It was just uh, totally bullshit free episode, which I thought was appropriate given the nature of our conversation. I'll tell you, Duncan, Duncan's a special guy. And, and I feel like we have a, a special connection when I sit down with him. Um, his dad died a week ago. My dad's not doing real well. Um, so we talked a lot about those sorts of issues and, but it's just so cool to to hang out with him because it's uh it's so easy 
you know, it, it's so easy to forget that we're even recording a podcast. The, you push the button, you start talking, and there's no awkwardness. There's no, I don't even think there was like a, so how you doing? Or what's happening with you lately? There, like no framing. It's just straight into it. And, and it just flows like a, you know, like a, the fucking Colorado river going through the grand Canyon. There, there's just no, there's no stagnation. There's, it's just straight up. Speaking of enjoyable podcasts, uh, if you're looking for other stuff to listen to, I just listened to um, uh, the Chuck Palahniuk uh, conversation with Joe Rogan that he just had recently. Very interesting. Very interesting. If you're interested in writing or 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 sort of transgressive thought, um, it was a fantastic conversation. I, I love these conversations where Joe's intelligence um, has a chance to really come out and flex, you know, I, he can, he speaks so many intellectual languages, Joe does, but, uh, I really enjoy it when I see him talking to someone who's very smart and, um, sort of brings that out of Joe. And I think that very much happened in that conversation. A, Chuck talks about a workshop, a writing workshop that he was in for years with uh, Cheryl Strayed, who wrote Wild. Uh, as it turns out, I had the um, leader of that workshop uh, on this podcast a while back. Episode 188. His name's Tom Spanbauer. Um yeah, so it's interesting to listen to Chuck Polinick talking about his experience and then uh, remember my conversation with Tom. Fascinating stuff. And of course, uh, Kyle Tierman's podcast never fails to satisfy. He's at Burning Man now, along with Simon Rex and lots of other friends of mine. I went last year, as some of you know. I don't know if I'll ever go again, but I'm kind of bumming this year because so many people I know are there. Um, yeah, so hope everybody's having a good time on the playa. All right, we got new shirts in from Thailand, so we're totally stocked up on Civilized to Death shirts. If you want to get uh, one of those, let Julie know. Order them, and she's got a garage full of those things. We also have a bunch of those tangentially reading books, fantastic books. If you're in the United States, order it from my mom through the website, and you get the full color version. If you're out there in the world somewhere, please order through your nearest Amazon uh, outlet, and uh, they'll ship it to you, and it'll cost you a lot less. All right. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everybody. This, again, is Steve Mullins. He uh, has a CD I've got in my hands here called Mosaics and Murmurations. You know what murmurations are? It's those wild, flowing, dancing clouds of sparrows that you see sometimes in the Midwest. I don't know if that's... I've seen it in Spain, and I've seen it in the U.S., so I guess it's a, a worldwide phenomenon. But uh, it's it's a beautiful, strange, mysterious thing to see those three-dimensional clouds of birds all moving and flowing and dancing together. You can learn more about Steve or get in touch with him through his website, 
which is stevemullinsmusic.com. His last name is spelled M-U-L-L-I-N-S, stevemullinsmusic.com. All right, here are a couple of uh, voices of our friends, and then we'll go right into the podcast with Steve. Thanks, everybody. Hey, Chris. I'm currently in a bathroom on an airplane flying over the Pacific Ocean because I forgot to do this in the last country I was in. I recently completed my first year teaching English in Vietnam and spent the summer traveling through Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Singapore, and I'm now heading back to Los Angeles, California before going to Vietnam. So I want to say thanks so much. Your podcast gave me a lot of courage when I was going to school and working, getting ready to make the transition going abroad. Thank you so, so much. All right, take care. Hi Chris, this is Gabby. I'm talking to you from Tajikistan in Central Asia. I'm in the Wakhan Valley looking directly into Afghanistan and it's a beautiful and harsh place. Uh, I'm currently on a world tour on my motorcycle, I hope anyway. And last year I rode from Argentina to Northern Canada and I was in Oregon during the solar eclipse, so I'm sure we were close. Uh, I do hope that our paths will cross sometime in the future because I would love to buy you that beer and thank you for uh, the direct influence you and Joe and Duncan and Aubrey have had on my life uh, these last couple of years. So thank you, Chris. Love you. Bye. Hey, Chris. It's Ben. Listening to you here out of uh, Fresno, California, the armpit of California. I'm currently working in a garage tinting windows. It's over 100 degrees, sweating my balls off. But you get me through the day, man. Keep it up. from Cadiz. Ah, I like Cadiz a lot. It's a cool town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoy it. We're recording, by the way. We, we just glide right into this. <laughs> I'm with uh, Steve, whose last name I don't know. Volens. Volens, who is Isaac's dad. Just recorded a podcast with Isaac's mom. I'm sort of... This is the uh, the series of Everyone Isaac Knows <laughs> podcast. <it> in the family. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you are a flamenco guitarist and an ethnomusicologist. Indeed. And a Zen Buddhist. Do yes. do is that part of your self-identification? Would you call yourself a Zen Buddhist or a Zen practitioner? I, I don't normally think of myself as Buddhist or any religious affiliation. Oh, ah, okay. Zen practice to me, you know, works for for anything. Music is sort of my primary Zen practice. I see. But yeah, I've practiced Zen with different teachers since I was a teenager, hmm. which was a long time ago. Did your, was there any connection to Buddhism in your family or your parents? No. Or Zen or meditators? No, or Quite the opposite. 
very Christian in my family in eastern Kansas growing up. But I think I found the, the Alan Watts way of Zen book when I was yeah. in eighth grade or something. Alan Watts. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I, I read a lot of Alan Watts, too. Yeah, he was a favorite. He, uh, he was actually a friend of my friend Stanley. Uh-huh. They used to hang out together on the houseboat in Sausalito or oh, wherever yeah. he was, yeah. Lots of good parties on Alan Watts' <laughs> houseboat. He was a partier by all accounts. Yeah, yeah. I guess he died of alcoholism. I think so, yeah. Such a strange way for someone that smart to die. Yeah, you know? it, it is. I don't know, I feel some conflict there, some... I don't want to be judgmental, yeah, you know, it's but it's a little hard to compute. Like Trungpa, also, right? Yeah, he was forty-six or something. I don't know a lot about that, you know, the Tibetan lineages, but I think the Trump uh, tradition was kind of all about that extremity, you know, there's right. different styles of <clears throat> Tibetan Buddhism, and his was all about partied up. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my lineage. If I had to pick <laughs> you one, that, yeah. you've received transmission in that lineage. Yeah. Well, I remember one time I was um, I was in my twenties and uh, late twenties, and I had just come back. I, I, I was. It was my first trip to Asia, and I was there for about two years. And this is after I went to Alaska for two summers, and then I was working in Manhattan for a couple of years, and I went to India and traveled around Asia for a while. And then I went to uh, Paris, you know, where my best friend was living at the time, the guy I've known since we were kids, and like very interesting, important friendship for both of us. And we were out. Uh, throwing a football around actually uh, on the sh- at the Champs Elysees or whatever that's mm-hmm. called, and which is a very obnoxiously American thing to be doing in Paris. <laughs> and he said, he said, you know, I finally figured you out, man. So, but here we go. And he said, you're an anti-monk. <laughs> so what are you talking about? He said, well, monks seek wisdom and enlightenment by renunciating the temptations of life and you're seeking the same thing you're on a spiritual quest but by immersing yourself <laughs> in the drugs and the sex and the music and all that right. and I think, I think he was right I mean that's yeah. that's you know not uncommon in Buddhist traditions I, I think you know even in Zen to say it's at least in some stage of life you have to experience it but before you know what you're renouncing but certainly Trungpa and that whole style was all about embracing it I think yeah, William James wrote that uh, the palace of wisdom lies at the end of the road of excess. <laughs> I like it. It's either that or a pool of vomit. I'm not sure what, what we encounter. Wisdom. Yeah, the palace of wisdom is full of vomit, let me tell you. Uh, yeah, so you're, uh, I mean, I want to talk about it all, obviously, but I'm. I have to admit to you that you know, despite the fact that I'm living this life of, of some, what some would call excess, the one great pleasure that I feel that I've missed and that I regret is that I don't play a musical instrument. Mm-hmm. It's really the one, the one thing I wish I could have done or I had, I did do that I didn't do, and it's partly because of a lack of discipline, which is the same thing that leads me, to, you know, into the life of. Mm-hmm excess in the, the pool of vomit but uh well it sounds like you should still do it yeah. well I, yeah i, I it's know it's never too late i have lots of teach or lots of students that are you know older than you and 
and really being a musician to me, what I was sort of focused on with them is just enjoying, just experiencing, engaging with the sound that you right. make. So if you could do this, right, you're a musician. Yeah, you could do like you could do this in five minutes. Yeah, and then you just build from there. The beauty and, of and I would just do that. I'd like go around yeah. with a guitar and play that chord. That's all I did when I first started playing guitar. I was like, man, I love that. And when I find students who are like that, where they love that. You know that's a good student. That's really a musician. They're going to engage with what they're doing. I really do love music. I, I there are few pleasures in life that touch me as deeply as yeah. as music. And it can be just a chord like that, or it can be a, a lyric that just fucking nails it, you know, or whatever. And just it, it doesn't have to be complicated. But there's there's a but this buddy of mine is a musician, and one of the themes running through our friendship is him being a very you know he's a child prodigy he plays classical he composes he plays mm -hmm. funk bass he you know he can play anything basically but he's also an engineer and he's a very sober-minded guy and i remember having these conversations with him where i would talk about like god did you feel did you feel that you feel? and he's like come on it's a minor chord of course you feel nostalgic that's what they do you know and for him it's like look it's this transition do, do, do. overanalyzing perhaps yeah and it, it it reminds me of this line from wordsworth we murder to dissect yeah you know and i it seems like you don't you're not afflicted with that you understand no. the music, but you still feel the mystery of it. Yes, absolutely. There is a balance for sure. I, you know, I talk about that with my students a lot. There's this stage when you're learning music theory or something where, yeah, it's like you're dissecting a bird and you kill it <laughs> in the process. But you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And ultimately, if you can digest what you're learning and still keep that sort of hard engagement with it, you know, that's the balance. That's what I love about, you know, ethnomusicology. One of the things I love about it is that it's, you know, engaging with all these different kinds of music that the same rules don't apply. You know, you can't apply Western music theory to you know, Balinese gamelan or something. Hmm. Very different ways of thinking, very different way of sounding. And so you get this opportunity to just keep learning. You know, that's the beauty of music. It's this lifelong learning thing and ethnomusicology the idea of learning to listen in in so many different ways there's no one correct musical way of listening there's lots of ways to listen to me that's how it really gets into zen practice too because for me that zen is that listen it's really all you need to know just be quiet enough to hear can you pay attention yeah fully and you know that, that's why music can be a Zen practice for me. The, the original school of Zen I was involved in is called Kwanum school, which is Korean, but it means perceived sound. That's what Kwanum means. And so, so they really mm -hmm. focus a lot on, on that, that idea of just listening without, you know, without conceptualizing, without making, without adding anything. Just direct experience of sound. Yeah, and do they like hit a gong or something, or is it the sound of your breath, or what, what are you focusing on? Well, shikantaza they call it, which is, means nothing but exactly sitting, which also means perceiving everything in your field. So, you know, we sit in our zendo over here, and we hear the roosters and the dogs barking and the birds. And so there's always, you know, any moment, what you're going to hear is going to be completely different than any other moment. Yeah. And it's not you being a listener, 
if you fully listen, then there's no you. Only there's only the sound. Right. So yeah, there's nothing in particular that you listen. Although in the quantum school, they do do a lot of chanting as well, where mm-hmm. everybody chants together, and after a while, it just becomes the sound of the group as opposed to individual. Yeah. Chanting. You mentioned ga- Indonesian or Balinese gamelan music. Yeah. I have. I have some of that in my collection. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder, it made me wonder if there are cultures in which music is always a group community Absolutely. event. Because yeah. I can't imagine a single gamelan player. No, it takes a village. A soloist. Yeah, that's one of the, in ethnomusicology, is one of the first things we look at in a culture is... Is it a cooperative, group-oriented culture in general? You know, egalitarian societies, you know, tend to. You can always hear that in their music. Really, they don't have individualistic, so virtuoso oh, soloists. Right. You know, that's right. true in, in Balinese gamelan for sure. It's all about the cooperation of of the group. The creation of a you group. You may just have one note. Right. But how that fits in with yeah. everyone else is what's valued. So the value system of that. You know, that's a very egalitarian example. So obviously, their music reflects their social attitudes in other ways. Hmm. And then you have an orchestra with soloists and very regimented, uh, a conductor controlling the whole thing, and and that's more of a, a militaristic, post-industrial. Yeah. I can huh. Interesting. American music, of course, we're a very individualistic society, so the emphasis is on. The soloist or the, the individual. What do you think from an ethnomusicolo- ethnomusicological point of view? That's is that, it, yeah. Is that it? <laughs> um, what do you think it is about America that has produced such great music? That American culture seems to be particularly fertile. Yeah. Like even the great British musicians come over here to learn and to, mm-hmm. you know, thrive. Is it just the the cultural mix, the slavery, the African, the you know all yeah, that? I was going to say that. Yeah, that's one certainly one thing. The, the hybridity, all the different ways to be hybrid, of the mixing and meetings of of cultures. Certainly, I think the resilience of African American culture, you know, and the ability to improvise, to just take it as it comes. That yeah. you had to have if you were a slave. Right. You know, I think that led somewhat to jazz and improvisation and, and you know, just resilience and, and improvisatory, you know, values. And, a, and a, a marginalization that leaves you in a position where the rules don't even apply to you. Yeah. You're not like you're, it's not even like you're breaking the rules. You're just right. so marginalized, nobody gives a shit. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. And of course, the suffering of that experience, you know, leading to the blues and such, we find, you know, many cultures where. I think Spanish flamenco I play comes to some degree out of the it's a blues-like situation of mm. you know mar- being marginalized and, yeah. and suffering and needing needing something cathartic to to deal with that. But that uh, my first love in terms of classical music was Bach. I love Bach too. Yeah, I've recently learned a Bach guitar while well, a lute suite. And it's one of the hardest things to learn, not because it was technically difficult, but because it just required so much memory of all these just subtle changes. It's so mm. subtle, it just keeps changing. So, yeah, I love Bach in that way. I find it very, um, I don't know what the word is, like spiritual, I guess. And I know he was writing in churches most of the time, employed by churches. Yeah. 
of course I don't have this the Christian framework uh-huh. you know it doesn't sound like Jesus to me no. but it does sound like some sort of quantum uh, fractal <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. there's something just so deeply symmetrical and that's beautiful true. that's a good way to put it in yeah, some of the, this stuff the structures it's so structural yeah and so complex but so balanced and so yeah. and so deeply emotional yeah I mean, I, to me it feels very intimate and we talked the other night, I think we mentioned the Beethoven late quartets. Yeah, I love those. Holy cow. I, I, I'll never get tired. If I get tired of listening to that, kill me. <laughs> I'm done. I got no juice left. Yeah, They're so too. beautiful. Very dissonant, but yes, beautiful. There was one um, that I first read about in this book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being by uh-huh. Milan Kundera. I guess his father was a symphony conductor, and he's very mm-hmm. interested in music. Have you read that book? I have a long time ago. You remember he talks about... the. Uh, I guess Beethoven wrote those quartets right at the end of his life. I think he was We've deaf. Been here, yeah. Yeah, and he held the pencil in his mouth to hear, feel the vibrations. And there was one where he wrote in the margin, "Muss es sein, ja es muss, es muss sein," which is "Must it be? Yes, it must be." Dara <laughs> <laughs> makes a big deal of that. But, I mean, yeah, what a profound <laughs> little thing to jot down in the marginalia. It is. Yeah, yeah, must be. Of course, he had imagination, you know. The, the People have a hard time understanding how could he write music when he was deaf, but someone of his musical stature could imagine music very clearly. Sure. No doubt. So he was hearing it, just not I mean, with his physical mechanism. But I hear music in my head. Don't, sure. I mean, I imagine you do with yeah. much more precision. You know, somebody like Beethoven can undoubtedly even look at a score, like an orchestral score, even, and hear it. And hear it, yeah. yeah. I can't do that, but I can look at a single part or something and right. kind of hear it. So you could probably do the whole score bit by bit. Yeah. It takes more. Training the imagination, you know, that's also what music is about. You learn to have a stronger imagination as a musician. I, I you know, I'm a big advocate for music in schools and such because it just, you know, helps kids with their imagination Hmm. to be able to remember music you know also helps train imagination I think is do you do you speak any other languages Um, I used to do pretty well in Spanish but I'm really rusty is do you feel like music is a language in your brain does your does your brain because my buddy, who's the musician, he also speaks five or six languages, and he always said to me, "It's like it's like a language. You just learn, like, oh, when you're in this key, you do this. So it's like the accusative case or the nominative case, where you know this verb takes that form in this case. And so they're like, in his mind, they're very clear parallels. Syntax and grammar. Yeah, yeah, it's like a language. I would say that it often gets, you know, it's a little mistaken to try to analyze music in a linguistic way. Because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have signs that carry direct meaning in the same way language does. But yeah, in terms of structure, that way it does, and it's also nice to look at it that way when you're looking at different cultures, because there are certainly different languages, and you yeah. sort of have to start from scratch. With some musics, if you're not, if you didn't grow up in that culture, you actually aren't even hearing what's going on. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. Like <laughs> you said, there aren't direct signs with explicit meanings, but uh-huh. if you play. 
uh, I don't know, what is it, Fiorelisa, the Beethoven mm -hmm. piano piece that's just so sort of nostalgic and sad. If, mm -hmm. if you were to play that in Bali, <laughs> would they hear... I just like a, a laughter not. and smile. I mean, those things are universal, yeah, right? Every culture experiences feels the same thing, right? Some sort of universal gestural content. Yeah. I usually argue no, that, that you have to know the grammar. You have to understand what you're supposed to be listening to. Some cultures don't even have a concept of melody, for example. You know, Furlis has this beautiful linear melody that we tend to experience as moving from point A to point B. If we're from, you know, European cultures, we probably think of that as going from left to right. <laughs> right. Even that's a very different conceptual stance than a lot of cultures. Some cultures don't listen to melody because they don't even have a concept of melody. You, you tend to hear what you know, what you've conceptualized somehow, and if you don't know that it's there, you probably don't even hear it. Some cultures have a whole ideas of stringing together timbres, for example. You know, What's a timbre? Timbre is like well, the difference between a flute and a banjo. You know, the good example of timbre. If they play the same note, you can tell the difference, right? If oh, I, just by I the play, quality of sound. If I play that note on a flute, it's going to sound very different than here on on, on the guitar. So the right. quality of sound, I yeah, see. or it's sometimes called tone color, uh, using visual sense to understand it. But but that whole notion of stringing together. Tambers is completely foreign to Western music. We don't we don't have a word for that. We have words like melody, which means stringing together a string of notes. Hmm. Some cultures don't have that, hmm. but they have timbral constructions that way. So it's hard to put our ears in the in in that other culture and, and think what it would be like to listen that way. So do you think are, are there universal things that can be said about the way cultures experience music? For example. Could we say all cultures um, transmit emotion through music and experience music emotionally? No. Really? Can't say that. Can't say that. A lot of cultures that don't think of music as emotional at all. Really? It's only maybe practical. It's maybe an animistic culture where you use music to heal you if you're sick or to make it rain or to help the crops grow or something. That's not considered emotional in any way. The, the oh. notion that music is emotional expression is a very 19th century romantic European thing. Really? Yeah. <laughs> no shit. I would think like singing comes from the heart. In many cultures, that's true. And we certainly experience it that way. Yeah. Right. It, you could listen to music that's not thought of that way at all, and you might experience it that way. <laughs> right. That doesn't mean that's how they're experiencing it. Right. Because right. they don't think of it that way. You know, I, I talk a lot about you know, animistic cultures where music is is very iconic. It's always about sounding like your soundscape, like like right. nature around you. Right. We talked about that the other night. Like jungle cultures have yeah. a lot of complex polyrhythmic. Yeah. Or this throat singing and tuba is very much from listening to the world around them there, which is very you know the sound of the water on the rocks creates these overtones, and, mm. and then they try to emulate that sounds in order to interact with the water going over the rocks because they're animistic and they believe that music is for spiritual connection to the world around you. That's very different than emotional expression. My baby left me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, not at all the same. That's interesting. I, I, I haven't thought about this a lot in the past, but I think I've had an assumption that singing comes out of grieving, or, yeah, like crying, wailing. Uh -huh. 
There are many cultures where that's true, where they actually sing in ways that try to sound like crying. Cante Cajillo in, in flamenco is meant to actually sound like crying. Yeah. Or in Sardinia, where they you know weep over the dead person and they sing in this very wailing <laughs> way. It's it's meant to be iconic of, of actual weeping. But that's, like I say, not true of all cultures. There are many cultures who have no connection of that notion of it's about individual emotion. Yeah. It's about a group, you know, effort to affect the world or, or something. Right. Interesting. So or it there, could be about storytelling, you know, narrative. Yeah. Like Gambelon, you know, is, is largely about that, connecting with mythic past. And, you know, that's not about emotion. Because, again, that's a, this, you know, group music that's, that's all, you know, it's very egalitarian. It's not so individualist, you know, who cares about your your grieving or your individual emotion. There's more important things to be doing with our music as a group. Yeah. Getting back to the question of why America is such a fertile place for musical innovation, mm -hmm. I, I had a conversation with a Spanish guy years ago, a, a doctor I was teaching English to, and we were talking about American culture, and he said, Chris, the thing about your culture is that you have no sense of the ridiculous. <laughs> he said, you know, you have, I don't know if George Bush was junior was president at the time or some, some ridiculous thing was happening. And he's like, you know, for example, that guy, for that example, could never, we have, we have some examples of that going on now. You, we do, yeah. He, he had no idea what was coming. But he also, I remember his other example was Jimi Hendrix. Uh -huh. He said, Jimi Hendrix could never be Spanish. There, there will never be a Spanish Jimi Hendrix. It's just inconceivable huh. that some guy is going to say, well, fuck it, I'm left-handed, I'm going to string it differently, over, yeah. and I'm going to chew gum in the recording studio, and I'm going to like just do whatever the fuck I feel, man, yeah. and become a virtuoso. Like uh -huh. That's not going to happen in a culture where yeah. ridiculousness is recognized and yeah. ridiculed. There's you know? a beauty in the American idea of individual freedom, yeah. for sure, and that's really does it have bearing on how American music has developed and did you go sounds. straight into flamenco or were you a electric no. guitar shredder at some point or I was more of a bluegrass guy uh -huh. you know I got as when I was young I played country bluegrass stuff and then I kind of got into jazz type stuff and then I eventually gravitated to flamenco why what do you think attracted you to the flamenco because it's hard, right? I mean, as a yeah, the technical challenge. I mean, I love that. Like I said, the aspect of music being a lifelong learning thing, and you know, what the beauty of music is you can't do something, and then you can, and huh. there's something else you can't do until you can. Yeah. So flamenco is very challenging that way, but it's also just emotionally so expressive. I do, I am attracted to music that's emotionally expressive. Flamenco just covers so many bases. You know, different genres of flamenco have very, very specific and different emotional content is it primarily i don't know flamenco well but my sense of it is that it's primarily kind of a blues sadness loss wailing despair love well the cante part the singing tends to be more that way when you, when you get into the dance accompaniment you know there's mm. all kinds of different energies yeah. he is a very happy dance and, yeah and and there's the, some very triumphant dancing yeah, too triumphant proud and some of it's very intense and grieve grieving and that's the other thing that's kept me interested in flamenco is that it's such an interactive experience to a flamenco performance. Most people in American audiences, anyway, probably don't understand all that's going on. There's so much 
queuing and, and you know sort of special information that you have to be aware of in order to, to proceed through the performance. Given Flamenco piece has lots of different sections, which everybody kind of knows. Sort of like playing a card game. We say, if you know how to play the, a certain game, Rummy or whatever, you can do a certain Flamenco dance. Everybody knows the, the rules, but then how it proceeds through the course of the game is 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 different every time, and mm. it's cued by certain motions the dancer might make that tells the singer now it's time to sing, and mm. or it tells the guitarist now it's your turn to to lead. So there's you know an incredible amount of subtle interaction that goes yeah. on in a flamenco performance that really makes it fun for me. When I first yeah. started playing flamenco, was, I was a Westerner, you know, American thinking. I play music, you dance to it. But that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> if we make go, it's you dance, I make I music, play music that, to it. That's, yeah. you know, comes from your body. Right. Sort of. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the energy of the dancer is being channeled through you. Yeah. When you're at your best, it is yeah. if we make go accompaniment, accompaniment, it feels like that. You're just, you know, making music for what they're doing. I've been to performances where I could see that happening. I could yeah. see that the dancer was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm into this. I'm not going to stop where you guys think I'm going to stop. I'm going to keep going. Yeah. And then you see the guitarist like, okay, here we go. And they're like, they're definitely following the dancer Absolutely. and watching very closely to see what she's doing or he's doing. And Absolutely. Yeah. And also the in Spain, in the, in the South anyway, the audience is participating. They know exactly where it is. It's all this clapping and ole and there's yeah. a lot of, it's like one of those black churches where <laughs> everybody's singing and screaming and dancing. It's right. fucking great. I was in Granada before I knew a lot about flamenco, and I went to this performance. It was all Spanish audience, and they were all going "Ole" together. It's like, how the hell did they know? <laughs> how to do, do they it know at that time? But yeah, I've done lectures since where I say, "How do you know when to, or when to say ole? Yeah. And that is understanding the structure and understanding how they're moving through this yeah. sequence of events and when they've come to the end of something, and then you say ole. Twenty-five years in Spain, I don't know when to say ole. <laughs> I'll tell you, dude, it's like shaking hands with a black guy. I just always end up on the wrong end of things. I don't know. I'm sorry. Well, I'm trying to be cool. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I get, like, I, my brother-in-law is black, and sometimes, you know, and we love each other, but I still fuck up the handshakes. I just can't do it. I'm sorry. Yeah, so uh, flamenco's kind of like, I mean, I said there's a similarity to blues, but I do feel like flamenco is very much like the black music of Spain. Because of the yeah, marginalization, it was marginalized and, and considered, you know, that's those people down in the south. And such. Yeah, so but it's also like one of the coolest things to come out of there. Yeah, yeah just like blues. Yeah. yeah, originally it was marginalized and, and looked down upon, but now it's become kind of the mainstream identity right. marker of of the culture. So, did you come to ethnomusicology through the music or through the anthropology? Is it considered a a part of anthropology or a part of musical theory? Where does it sit? Yeah, it's anthropology meets musicology. And it's, you know, all kinds of different balances of that. That's one thing I like about the field is that it allows for all sorts of, I mean, like I'm really into cognitive science and psychology and other things, you know, to put in there. So there's lots of different balances of the two and even different programs, you know, are more anthropology based and others are more musicology based. And I came at it more from the music. Yeah, just learning, just starting to have my ears open to all these amazing sounds out there. And why the hell do they sound like that? Yeah. How do they come up with that? So, that, you know, it was more as a musician, you know, being interested in that as opposed to from the anthropological side. But it is sometimes referred to as the anthropology of music. Do you think that you can learn enough to go to a very different culture 
and hear the music or is it like is it like you know accent for example you can learn Russian as an adult but you'll never have a Russian accent because you have to learn it when you're a kid and in other words through the cognitive science is it and all is it the brain structure or can you can you learn to understand it can you truly become an insider to to it that's a really good question I ask my students that a lot and you know I think it depends a lot on on the culture and how much common ground you have to begin with or how discursive I like to say the culture is how much do they talk about it and think about it so many cultures like flamenco they don't think about what they're doing so if, right. you, if you don't grow up with it you, you know you're never going to have the same head on your shoulders that they do because they just do it they don't think about it if you right. take lessons from a flamenco guitarist in spain they just play it so go out in the hall and learn it come back when you got it so they don't do a lot of you know saying well this is a beat flat 11 quarter you know any kind of analysis of what they're doing so it's pretty much impossible to ever truly be an insider to that sort of mindset. Right. Whereas if you're studying music in India, perhaps, like in the Hindustani classical tradition, it's so discursive, it's so intellectual, it's such a science where they, they think about and teach about every little detail. I think it's more possible to become kind of an insider to that because you, you know, you're going to learn by thinking about it because you're an outsider. You have to think about it in order to figure it out. But since they do it mm. that way already, that's a little more welcoming to that kind of Approach and the music itself is more intellectual, yeah, as well. So it can be absorbed through the brain, right? Maybe through an intellectual approach, right? So what about so you don't time? need to necessarily have grown up with it? Yeah. So what about time then? When we listen to Bach, are we hearing anything like what he was saying? Historical changes in how people think you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. So we're talking, you know, India or or Gamelan, that's a spatial thing. Yeah. And then we have a time thing within our own. I mean, I feel like if I listen to Eric Clapton playing blues, I kind of feel like I hear it more clearly than if I listen to maybe Robert Johnson. Even though Robert Johnson is is the origin of a lot of this stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. There's something about a white guy, roughly my age, playing it that brings it closer to me somehow. Well, he's also made it more accessible rhythmically in different ways in which it is easier to understand. Robert mm. Johnson's doing these very African polyrhythmic groove things that most Americans don't understand. Mm. So you're not hearing it as well. Maybe not connecting with it as much because it is more different than the European-American tradition whereas Clapton he plays when he plays Crossroads I do this for my class too I'll play mm. Robert Johnson Crossroads and the Eric Clapton version. which do you like better they usually always like Clapton it's just it's you a play lot it more, on the guitar or you play no, the recordings, play recordings. Oh, okay. yeah it's a lot more accessible yeah in terms of Bach and the historical thing that's a very interesting question I, I can imagine that we don't hear Bach in the same way people did when they were there that, well, it kind of gets back to the Christian century right they were sitting in a medieval yeah. church right Feeling this was like you were saying the the tuve and throat singing is a bridge to the animist world, the world of spirits, the waterfall spirit, or whatever. Whereas Bach was sort of a, providing a bridge to a Christian. Yeah, the Christian tradition, yeah. you know, of Western music in Europe was I like to, you know, construe it, it or describe it as it's very transcendental. Everything is about purity and sort of. 
you know, goal orientation, getting to heaven mm. kind of thing. So tones, for instance, I mean, if you're a classical singer or even a classical guitarist, your job is to sort of be as disembodied as possible to not sound like there's a body there. Interesting. <laughs> to yeah. sound transcendental. Whereas, right. you know, flamenco guitarists, we're slapping. It's all about the body. It's all about the body. And, and black music, right? Yeah. It's sin. That's and that's right. why it was so <laughs> frightening to people. That's right. Because it's all, the, yeah, it's all sex yeah. and yeah, absolutely. blood and shit and drinking. <laughs> And generation after generation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of that in ethnomusicology, too. You know, what is the value systems underlying? Why does it sound like that? You know, my dissertation was on flamenco, and I did a lot of analysis of the body of, of flamenco dancers and how they use tension and relaxation, mm. countertension, and the way the body is used in the dance is really comparable to how the music sounds. Mm. It has a lot of the same values, you know, Opposition, fighting against the beat, contra, you know, contra tempo, and Spanish against the time, and you know, it's it's kind of like the bullfight mm. as well. So many ways in which all these things are of a piece, you know, but definitely more bodily oriented than than is typical in the Western classical tradition. Singers have very yeah. pure tones, right? That, that you know don't have a lot of overtone content. They even cut off the balls of some boys to make them sound right. otherworldly. As pure as possible. Yeah, like talk about <laughs> purity. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah. That's back to timbre. You know, what kind of timbre is valued in a culture and how much is it valued? That, that has, has an important question in any kind of music. In that case, it's, you know, pure timbre, flute-like timbre that doesn't have overtones. Do you have perfect pitch? No. Wish I did, but... I, my my buddy does, and he's tried to explain to me several times what that means. And I just, it's a very <laughs> curious experience. Yeah, I mean, the way he explained it was, I think, at least the way I remember it was like, if you say C sharp, he can hum C sharp, or vice versa. You play it, he can tell you that's what it is. Ah, okay, yeah. that's what it is. Sorry, uh -huh. he recognizes. People describe it as you know, it's almost like recognizing gradations of color or something. Mm. Yeah. So you have like a, a zero on the spectrum where you can always return and then work from there. I suppose. Huh. Of course, that's cultural as well. I mean, perfect pitch in this culture would be different than perfect pitch in India. That's what I was going to ask. a lot more pitches to be aware of. Most people who are trained in the conceptual system of Western music, even if you do have perfect pitch, you're, you're going to want to lump a bunch of those other extra pitches in Indian music into a certain pitch you're not you're going to just finely discriminate them yeah. in the way that's required by that music <sighs> yeah okay i guess <laughs> i don't know what pitch is pitch is a concept it's not anything it's not real <laughs> okay it's purely all right. conceptual all right pitch is you know what we call a pitch like if i play b call that B and we think of that as a single thing that's a gestalt you know I'm really into gestalt theory and, and how we cognitively we lump things into you know singularities all the time to make our experience a little more manageable right so you know a pitch is is really actually many many pitches it's just that we hear one frequency a lot louder than we hear the others and we focus on that and we call it all one by oh, one really? B. but it's really got the string is vibrating in multiple ways so it's creating lots of different pitches that are called overtones okay so that has a lot of different you know content of those overtones than say a flute would or something that's where we get into timbre and all that 
Uh, I see. That's what we mean when we say a fluid is a purer sound. More pure because, because we it hear doesn't have mostly that. only the fundamental tone. We don't hear those other pitches I see. as much. Like a banjo is kind of clanky sounding. And yeah. It has all this kind of noise. A in lot it. of resonance. Yeah, going those on. are overtones. Right. Those are the other pitches. But we've limited it conceptually into a single gestalt, a single thing. And then we have this concept of putting those together to create a melody or something. And that's all very conceptual. If I play a pitch and I play another pitch, there's nothing that actually connects them together except your mind. <laughs> except, the, you know, it's music is exists only in the mind in a, in a sense it's conceptual we, we understand relationships through time hmm. we map those and we tie those notes together or we think of them as going up or down these are all just ways we cross map bodily things onto the sound of the music and then we by so doing we have this experience of melody but not all cultures even do that. So like I said some cultures don't have a concept of melody or even a concept of pitch it's not a single thing. That's lots of things. Yeah. So, do you believe in talent? Yeah, I've seen it in action many times. Certain people are just much quicker to learn. I guess you call that talent. So I, I sometimes think you know persistence trumps talent. Hmm. You know, in terms of having taught hundreds of students over the years, some come to me and they're amazingly quick learners. But then that usually means they don't value it as much right as someone else who so if you have talent and persistence then then you really grow but yeah yeah and also i wonder the extent to which i don't know franz list for example incredibly technically skilled mm -hmm. but i'm never interested in listening to his music because i don't mm -hmm. feel like there's anything there yeah Emotionally, we have a dog running around here. <laughs> Those of you who are listening, and the scraping sound. Yeah, um, I wonder if there's, um, you know, a relationship like you're talking about talent and persistence, and I wonder if there's a relationship between the talent, technical expertise, and uh, I don't know the emotional availability. Yeah. I sort of evaluate people I play with or my students or on the whole notion of how engaged they are is the word I like to use. I mean, I can't explain what that really means, but just, it's kind of a heart thing. There are people who are really, really amazingly technically skilled, but they because they're so in their head about it, they don't ever really connect with what they're doing. It's, it's just like intellectual activity. And then there's other people who are just completely about heart and they can't even begin to or don't want to even think about music they just want to play it and oftentimes that sort of limits them from learning mm. also so there's somewhere in between a kind of yeah. happy medium where you engage the intellect in order to learn but without losing that emotional heart connection to what you're doing and loving just loving making sounds flamenco seems like a type of a, a musical culture that would be very intolerant of someone who was technically skilled but disengaged yeah i think that's true it's more important that you have the right attitude that you have the aire and the duende <laughs> you know these old women will get up and they just do a few moves and that's like it's all there yeah. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't you don't need technique you need yeah. attitude right so that certainly is more important yeah 
my buddy Tao, I think I told you, plays flamenco, and uh-huh. because Keith Richards told him, like, yeah. that's the route to being a great guitarist. <laughs> right. And uh, he also, he's a filmmaker. He made a couple of films about flamenco. I'll, I'll show them to you mm. later and yeah, get like you the, the links. He spent a lot of time in Sevilla practicing and learning and nice. hung out. He made this one beautiful film. I wish I could remember what it's called. I'll, I'll put a link. I'm making a note right now. Um, I'll put a link on my page uh, to this episode. So anyone who's listening to this who wants mm. to see Tal's film, it'll be there. Nice. Um, about this guy Pedro I don't remember his name but he's like a classic he's dead now but he was a classic and he allowed Tao because Tao was sort of the community to make a film of them playing in the back room of a cafe after it closed Mm -hmm. just them like the real deal not a performance just them hanging out playing you know and I remember Tao telling me something about talking to him and maybe it's even in the film and and saying like you could be making so much money and yet you and all your family are butchers (laughs) and you go to work all day and you guys could just go to madrid and like make a month's salary in an hour you know and the the idea was that it's music is your love yeah you it's not your job like there's something it would be like you know asking your wife to be a prostitute you know it's like no there's money there's work and then there's music Uh yeah that is sort of a lifestyle thing there and it's about i mean for some people in traditional southern spain it's all about intimacy and experiencing it you know directly with someone else like in the conte styles like in the peñas where they get together in the drink a bunch of sherry and then and then they start emoting to each other or they get you know two men usually two older guys get right in each other's face and take turns singing and crying and just almost like a rap battle <laughs> yeah it's yeah. intense intimate emotional connection so that's part of Mexico for sure that's yeah. very different from the dance world and of course in madrid you know the big theatrical shows and all that have become so popular but in many ways yeah that's the heart of flamenco that intimate emoting yeah yeah so i asked you about talent one of the things i i wanted to to get your thoughts on like my buddy mike he's extremely talented he learns very quickly music language whatever it's a very very smart guy so let's say you take mike because i think a lot of that's genetic his brother was a studio musician in la his parents weren't musicians but the two of them grew up you know being very serious and talented so let's say you take a kid like that a baby and separate from cultural influences you you raise them with instruments around okay would they learn so say this kid picks up the guitar and is playing the guitar would are there what am i trying to say it's like it's like noam chomsky has this theory of the the universal grammar of the brain so all languages will have certain similarities because Mm -hmm. they come out of the human brain which has universal Mm -hmm. qualities would something like that happen with music in other words if you had a hundred of these kids theoretically would some of them be playing something like blues and some of them would play something like indian music and some of them would it settle out 
in ways that human <laughs> cultures have already settled out? Is there something in the music? I get, you know what I'm saying? Is there something so. there? Like Rodin said, you know, I'm not, I'm not creating a sculpture. I'm removing all the extra stone and, <laughs> and revealing what's in there. Uh -huh. Is that in music, do you think? Are there fundamental qualities of music that will always be discovered? Sorry if that's I usually, a bullshit question. No, I usually, I mean, it's a good question. We, I talk about this a lot with my students. So just the whole notion is, is music a universal language or how universal is it? What parts are universal? Yeah. I usually err on the side of it's not really. It's much more cultural. I mean, you can, you can make arguments that, well, if they picked up the sitar, they might eventually start playing something that sounded like Indian music because that's tuned that way, yeah. the way it's tuned, the way it's set up. Right. Sure, that's going to include even the guitar and the way it's tuned inclines us towards flamenco i think i mean a lot it's idiomatic it's a style of music that's very idiomatic to the, huh. to the instrument the way just this way of putting the strings together and tuning them creates a lot of the chords that work yeah. and you know and so is, is really your fond. guitar tuned differently no it's normal tuning uh -huh. but you know in flamenco they're fond of these kinds of dissonances sometimes called horn chords because it has horns in it it's like a matador hmm. moving away from the horn hmm. oh the horn of the of a not bowl. a term trumpet a no, horn, horn a as in the bowl huh. <laughs> or you know we get all these having these it's very much you know emblematic of flamenco but it's also idiomatic to the guitar it's because the guitar is tuned this way that those those happen so you might ultimately start playing something that's like flamenco if you untutored around a guitar from the time you were little, maybe, or a sitar, but generally I, I tend to think of musical vocabularies of different cultures as being so vastly different, we end up interpreting them from our own perspective because we don't know what we're even supposed to be hearing, like I said, chances are you're not hearing a lot of what's there, so I don't think, you know, a child would grow up and, and automatically start playing that without the cultural, you know, learning. Hmm. Would you play I something that you enjoy? Okay. So I'll shut up for a while. <laughs> Always a high point of any podcast. So, dumb question, but what do you enjoy about that? It looked like it was fun to play. <laughs> I don't know if that's what it is. Oh, the rhythm. I, yeah, you asked me before why I chose flamenco. It is a very balanced music that you know has wonderful rhythm, 
syncopation, the contra tempo thing I was mentioning. It's got a lot of contra in it, that melody. It's not on the beat, it's off the beat, which gives it a whole, you know, hooks your body. Mm. As opposed to, like, you know, European Pavan we talked about the other night. Everything's right on the beat. You know, there's a lot of syncopation in flamenco. Also interesting chords, interesting harmony. It's it's kind of like jazz in that it's balanced music. Some music's really emphasize one thing and don't so much other things. Flamenco hmm. is very melodic, very harmonically interesting, and, and very rhythmic. What do you think about Pat Metheny? He's great. He's amazing, isn't he? Yeah, really amazing. Yeah, he's done some stuff that I can't understand. His record with Ornette, Ornette Coleman, I have no idea. <laughs> Song that X. That? That's wild. I don't trying to be gonna... completely free jazz. Yeah, which I, I don't is hard to relate that. to. You know, my opinion about that is that you know, music is about structure and how you work with structure. So there needs to be, you know, the notion of free jazz where we're going to try to avoid all structure ends up meaning you avoid anybody like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, well, how yeah. you relate to structure is, is part of what makes music interesting. Well, that's it. I, I mean, I feel like a dilettante in even saying something <laughs> like that, but when I bought that record, actually, it was cool because the guy at the record store warned me. And he, when I came up, I must have been whatever I, I was, that 20. that long, long ago, too. Yeah, and he was like, you like Pat Metheny? I said, yeah. He said... Careful with this one. Yeah, you might, you might want to think about this one. But I was like, fuck it, I'm buying it. And I listened to it, and I was like, how, in what way is this music? Yeah. Like, how is this different from me picking up instruments and just going? Yeah, it's a little bit like throwing paint on a canvas. Yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. Or, or you know, red painting, you know, by yeah. Rothko or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But his other stuff, uh, his... Um, as Falls Wichita, so Falls Wichita Falls is one of my favorite uh, records really of all times with Lyle Mays. Yeah. And then um, Beneath the Missouri Sky with uh, Charlie Hayden on bass, just the mm -hmm. two of them. Not sure I'm familiar with that one. Oh, that's that's lovely. Yeah, he's very melodic and yeah, yeah very amazing. Yeah, interesting guy. He did something recently where he, he's like built a structure that is... An instrument, Makes like the sound. entire building. Yeah, yeah he yeah. plays the building somehow. <laughs> so. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have a friend who's done sound sculptures. There, you know, that's the idea. The wind activates different things and yeah. creates music. You know, Bill Laswell. You ever heard of him? Don't think so. He was in a band called Material with uh, Brian Eno, and uh, I think David Byrne was involved for a while. The Talking Heads guy, mm -hmm. and um, he played bass primarily and then um, he really got into producing and so the studio becomes the instrument uh -huh. that he plays yeah. and he's so fucking good he'll take he does there's a record called imaginary cuba where he was in cuba with one <laughs> of these recording devices and he did sound recording or field recordings of you know he stood outside a church when they were singing or the, you know the animals in the field and the guy calling the donkeys in or whatever mm -hmm. and then he takes them back to the studio and and adds instruments and you know some uh, you know real instruments and other sort of uh, synthesized and um but he he creates these beautiful worlds Hmm. Uh, and he's so good at it that the um, estate of Bob Marley gave him access to the original reel-to-reel hmm. -reel recordings so that he could take them apart wow. and put them back together. And I think that record's called Dreams of Freedom. And then he also, I think he did one with 
uh, Hendrix original recordings as well. Huh. It's just, yeah. Fascinating. It's cool how you can take music apart. Yeah. You know, and a recording, and just take that yeah. one line, and you know, remix it and uh-huh. change it. And yeah. you know, there's a guy named Rick Beato. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's um, on. He has a YouTube thing where he is a series. It's called "What Makes This Song Great," hmm. and he'll just t- take the song and just take it apart. And like, okay, now what he did here was this is actually this guitar part is going backwards. They recorded it and then they play it backwards. And then <laughs> you know, this is like underwater. They put the mic underwater and like all these tricks that yeah, you would yeah. never know nice. go into you know a Tom Petty song or something. And it's like, holy shit, man, that's that's huh. a lot of work goes into that stuff. Yeah. That then goes out on the radio and you hear it, you know, over the sound of your car engine in the wind and (laughs) miss 90% of it. So are humans the only animals that create music? Well, depends on how you define that, create, and also how you define music. The the typical definition of music, at least in ethnomusicology, John Blacking's humanly organized sound. Uh-huh. So in that definition, yeah, it's a human thing. It's a con- because it's a conceptual thing. Because there aren't real physical, rea- you know, relationships between one sound and another. We have to map a cognitive relationship. But isn't time. rhythm? I mean, isn't rhythm sound distributed over time? Yeah, but that's a concept you just described. If I make a sound, and then I make another sound. Does it, like John Cage, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, John, sure. his famous piece, 4 minutes 33 seconds, where the pianist sits at the piano and doesn't make any sound. Yeah. People don't understand that because they think, well, it was silent. But his real point was music is human cognition. The sound of someone coughing, the sound of someone shuffling their paper. Mm. If you connect those sounds cognitively, then you have rhythm. So if you put rhythm onto those sounds, then you have music. But that's human that's only human. <laughs> so four beats every 20 seconds. There's nothing that connects them other than your mind as a listener or the intention of the composer. You can say, I mean, John Cage was all about trying to take the intention of the composer out of it and make music be clearly an experience of the reception of sound by the listener. He would always say things like, you know, let the sounds be themselves. Try to, try to experience sound as unmapped, as, as un, you know, connected cognitively, conceptually. So in that sense, he was a real Zen teacher. Yeah, that's, it sounds like your <laughs> Korean teaching. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a Zen practitioner, so, oh, okay. so he was taking that and applying it to the experience of sound and music. So his music, of course, isn't something you want to listen to. Yeah, It's more about the philosophy of, that he was trying to make the point. His point in 4 minutes 33 seconds is that music is up to you as a listener, if you were in that audience, and especially if you're inclined to experience music, and you hear someone cough, and you hear someone shuffle, and maybe you start hearing a beat between Mm. those things, and now you have music, because you've mapped rhythm onto that soundscape. Yeah. And that's what music always requires. There's no such thing as music without rhythm, which means the relationship of one sound to another in time. There's nothing that relates a sound to another in time except your cognitive experience. This is getting into like quantum mechanics here. This is, <laughs> I thought I thought my question was obscure. Your answers are really, it's really obscure. You're throwing it right back at me. Uh, yeah, because I, I mean, I would have thought like the you know we talk about the rhythm of a heartbeat, uh-huh. but you're saying that's only rhythm when it reaches the brain, the mind of the listener. It massages it, patterns it. We're pattern seeking. Creatures. But there are patterns there. 
before I mean if a heart beats in the woods and nobody hears it, no, is, is it there, still is beating? There still a pattern? <laughs> is there still a pattern? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the case of a heartbeat, that's an interesting question. Certainly in the case of produced sounds that we call music, the patterning is done by the by the listener. You can say objectively, yeah, there's a pattern there because each one is five seconds apart or something. But it's that perception of pattern that music requires. Hmm. That's why something like free jazz is a hard, almost oh. is arguable that, well, that's not music. Because you're not there's seeing no perception of any repetition. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times patterns are subconscious. Oh. We're not aware of them when we listen to music. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they're not conceptual. They're, they're still based on, at some level, we're recognizing pattern in our yeah. experience. The experience of music requires patterning, and, which is another way of saying requires conceptualizing. Yeah. You have any feelings about Gustav Mahler? I've never been a big fan, but I've, I've played mandolin and Mahler symphonies where I oh. sat there for 20 minutes and then I wanted to play five <laughs> notes and then sit there another 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I find that pretty boring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's not one I've listened to a lot. So. I, I really, he was one of my favorite classical composers when I was taking a lot of LSD and <laughs> listening to a lot of classical music. Yeah, the, yeah, they're big the first three. I didn't get into the later ones. Mm. But his first symphony is full, you know, and this the reason I mention it is that his, those first three, but particularly the first symphony, I think, is full of a lot of sounds of nature, mm. like uh, flutes making bird sounds and mm -hmm. sort of seemingly random animal sounds. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and and the the second he there's the third movement I think of the second symphony is uh, starts off as a waltz and ends up in just total chaos, <laughs> and you know it's sort of some people have argued it's like him seeing the Second World War coming and mm, the dissolution yeah. of yeah. Germanic culture and you know, the the yeah the inherent imbalances and. Yeah, he. I mean, some people have argued that he took classical music to its limit, and then had to become atonal. A, yeah, that. exactly. Who was it? Yeah. Schoenberg? No, who, who was yeah, the Schoenberg? Was yeah, he was his student, I think, Mahler's student. And Alma, the other reason I was reminded of him, Alma was his wife, his wife yeah. who was analyzed by Freud, uh -huh. and then after uh, Mahler died, she married uh, Walter Gropius, I believe, who was the great architect the Bauhaus movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Vienna yeah, at the turn yeah, of the last the century. century. Yeah. Jung and Freud and Mahler, and there's a lot of interesting shit going yeah, on there. interesting, yeah. Kind of a, now it's petrified, but <laughs> it was it was very alive at that point. So Schoenberg was taking, you know, kind of along the lines of what I was talking about, he was taking the, one of the things that had always patterned music in the Western tradition out, which was tonal movement, this notion that one chord needs to go to another one, whether there's consonants and dissonance and stability and instability, which is at the basis of Western music largely. But again, that's all very conceptual. He took out that sort of patterning and made it atonal, where, you know, using a tone rule where every note had equal dissonance. So liberation of dissonance, he called it. But he still used rhythm and other things to pattern the music. So yeah. there was a lot of subconscious feeling of pattern so it could still be very emotional i think i kind of like some of what schoenberg did hmm. 
Well, I'll tell you what, man. If we lived near each other, I would hire you as my music teacher and come and torment the fuck out of I'm you. I'm going to teach you this chord <laughs> from there on. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you said that. I, I, for some reason, I remembered this guy I met in Guatemala years ago, a long time ago. Uh, he had been in Guatemala about six months. He's a British guy. He didn't speak any Spanish except he said the word C. And so you'd be talking to him in English, and he'd be, oh, see, see, see. Oh, yeah, see, 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 see. But then you go to a restaurant, he couldn't even order a beer. But he just said see. And it was like, it was as if in his mind, if he's, you know, half the words that came out of his mouth were Spanish, and C was one of them, the only one, somehow that counted. So that, that me walking around playing one chord with flourish reminded me of that dude. Similar. Saying C all the time. Yeah. Well, I've sometimes, I, I mean, I grew up, there was a piano in the house, and my dad wanted to teach me. My dad loved music. And, and it, I think it was one of the disappointments of his life that I never. I never went for it, and and wasn't he wasn't a judgmental guy. He wasn't. There was just some fear I had of it, and I can even remember. And this is like a great shame for me. Like I remember him, and I actually shared this with him recently. And uh, I remember him singing in the car when we were driving somewhere, and he would mm -hmm. sing just so, and he had a good voice and just free and just really like loving it and. But he messed up the words because he didn't know the words. He was just singing whatever was on the radio. And I, and I just sat in the back seat cringing in shame. Like, Dad. Because <laughs> he's messing up the Oh, words. man. And there's just something about the emotional nakedness of it and yeah, the yeah. shamelessness of it mm -hmm. that bothered me as a kid. Interesting. And it's weird because as an adult, my entire fucking life <laughs> is about eradicating shame, you know, mm -hmm. and helping other people lose their shame around sexuality or drugs or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. It's never helpful. And yet I, I experienced kid, it around music, which is, interesting. it is weird because it's probably the thing that I enjoy most in life. It's strange. I don't know. I got to work my shit out. I didn't really become a musician until I was, you know, pretty late in life. I played a little piano because my mother encouraged that, but I hated how I was taught. You know, it was all just learn this piece. And, right. And then I played little drums, but it, you know, it wasn't until I got into Zen practice that you know, I remember thinking, like when I was in eighth grade, I, more than anything else, I would love to be a guitar player. But I think it's probably too fucking late. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then when I, I start practicing, did you know? I get this, you know, information that you can do, you can make love your life, whatever you want. So yeah. it's like, okay, I'm going to play music. I'm going to make that my practice. And so I sort of consciously made that decision when I was like 20. Huh. Got a guitar, and you know, ever since. That's great. Well, maybe I'll take up Zen and then uh, guitar. <laughs> or vice versa. <laughs> or vice versa. You can access Zen through guitar. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> uh, listen, thank you. Thank you, man. I really enjoyed Thank hanging you. with you and asking you all these incomprehensible questions <laughs> that have been building up over a lifetime. Uh, would you play us out with something else? I'll, I'll make a little video here and put it up on the website for folks. I'll play a little bit of a Pearl in the Moonlight I wrote for my great for my grandmother, Pearl, who lived to be 103, and she lived in the farmhouse in Kansas, and I always wondered what she did at night when it was so dark there. So this was Pearl, my imagination of Pearl in the Moonlight.
That's beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Did you ever play that for Pearl? No, you know, I performed it at a concert at the Denver Zen Center for the first time I ever performed it was with a group, was the night she died. Yeah. She was dying as I was writing that. I knew she was, you know, about to die, so I didn't get to perform it for her. But. Had she died before you played it? Did you know? Well, I don't know about the timing. I didn't know until the next day oh, okay. that, she, that she had died. But yeah, I'm not sure of the actual specific timing. But. Wow. Thank you. Cool dude, huh? I hope you enjoy that conversation with Steve Mullins. You can check him out at stevemullinsmusic.com. This is the part of the podcast where I sort of contradict myself by patting myself on the back for not having advertising and yet remind you that the podcast does need to be supported. And so if you can do that through Patreon, that's fantastic. If you do that through using uh, through buying stickers and T-shirts and uh, tangentially reading books or signed copies of Sex at Dawn or whatever through my website, that's super cool. There are donation buttons on the website as well if you just want to throw me some cash and forget about it. Uh, whatever works for you works for me. Thank you to all of you. And if, as I always say, if you don't have the cash, don't sweat it. Someday things will be better if I'm dead and gone. Give it to somebody else. It doesn't matter. All right. Uh, I guess that's about it. I've got new t-shirts coming in. They're Vanthropology shirts, Vanthropology 101. So if you're a Vanthropologist or aspire to be or just like the notion, you can order those at my website. If they're not up yet, come back in a couple days. They are arriving tomorrow, Monday, which is when this will go out. And I'll throw them up on the, take some pictures and get them up on the website within a day or two. All right. Thank you for listening. And uh, here's to you, Bennett and Justin. Carsey Blanton's going to sing you out as she always does. The song's called Smoke Alarm. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Stone. I don't want to give the end away
a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.